Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a series of programs on the subject of spiritual warfare, and today's program is a continuation of the previous ones. Now, in the previous program, I explained the significance of recognizing that you have to know the gospel and that the gospel that you believe in needs to be the correct gospel. Now, I suggested that you should, if you have not done this already, you should do a survey. You should actually go and ask people, how would you describe the gospel? It is a very important question to ask. You will discover that there are many different beliefs. There will be many different responses to this question and that you should make note of them. Now, probably the most common answer you will get, from my experience, this is the most common answer that you will get, that you will feel somewhat satisfied with, is that Jesus died for our sins. So if we will believe that Jesus died for our sins, then when we go before him in heaven, and we are confronted with him, he will not hold our sins against us, So he will permit us to have entrance into the kingdom of heaven. This is a good answer. This is a general answer, and I believe it will probably be consistent with the majority of the answers that you get from people who would be recognized as being relative mature believers, mature believers, relatively speaking, that Jesus died for your sins and so you can go to heaven when you die. Now, I will not say that this answer is incorrect. I will not say that. But what I will say is that the answer is a little incomplete, that I personally would prefer that a little bit more information was disclosed. I don't think that that is quite adequate. For example, I really don't believe that we are to just sit here and wait until we go to heaven when we are confronted with God And then he won't hold our sins against us and he'll let us into heaven. I I just don't believe that that's all there is to it. I don't believe that he died for our sins just so we can wait to go to heaven. And between now and then, we're supposed to just kind of sit around and pray that a rock doesn't fall on us or something like that. I mean, what are we doing between now and then? There are many ways to describe this. I've done this in many ways in my programs, but... In this one, I'm going to say it this way, that I do not believe that Jesus died for our sins just so he could get us out of hell and into heaven. It's my belief that he died for our sins so that he could also get himself out of heaven and into us. And in that way, we can experience a new life in Christ Jesus right now that will continue. It will also carry us on into the kingdom of heaven after we physically die. But we're not sitting around, or at least I'm not sitting around, waiting for death. I've encountered a lot of people like that. I've gone to churches, I've been with a lot of people who say that they're believers, and they quite likely are. But what they're doing is they're just sitting around, praying for death, 
waiting for death. Oh, Lord Jesus, come and take me before I die even. They're just sitting around waiting and not realizing that there is a life to be lived right now and that the Lord is involved in something right now and that he has invited us to be participants in what he is doing right now. There's, there's, there's no reason to wait. What are you waiting for? I mean, there is a life to be lived, and this is something that I believe people miss out on. And part of that is because of a misunderstanding of the gospel. And I mean that in the sense that there's a little bit more that needs to be understood in order for this door to be opened so that people may walk through. If I may use the description that Jesus gave to Peter, that he would give Peter the keys, he opened the door. People need to walk through. One of the keys is to understand the nature of the problem, that the good news is the solution to a problem. Another way to describe this is to say that there was some bad news. There's some bad news and there's some good news. There's a problem. There's a solution. This is a good way to consider the nature of the gospel, the nature of the good news. First, let's consider the bad news or what the nature of the problem really is. As I said, it's not just a matter of trying to get us out of hell and into heaven. This is also a matter of him getting himself out of heaven and into us. Consider the creation of humanity described in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. When God created man, he breathed within him the breath of life, and he became a living being. Now, that breath of life is a very unique construction of two words. And these two words, in my opinion, are a good description and should be better translated as the breath of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit, the spirit of life. It was written in a way that to me gives a divine representation, which is to say that he breathed within Adam his spirit. He breathed his spirit into Adam, his life-giving spirit into Adam, and Adam became a living being from a spiritual point of view. Now, I do believe that Adam was also physically alive, but that this is a different kind of life. It is a life that is unique from the animals, for example, or from the plants even. There is a similar construction that was used later on in the book of Genesis to describe the animals, but it's still unique enough that I believe that there is a distinct difference between the life in an animal and the life that is within humanity, or at least was in humanity. Then the Lord gave the law. The law was, in the day that you eat from the wrong tree, in that day you will surely die. And sure enough, you keep reading, and in chapter 3, they ate from the wrong tree, Adam and Eve, they ate from the wrong tree, and they died. And according to the law, it would have happened in that very day. He could not have written it in a more explicit manner. The words that he chose to use were very explicit to say that they would die absolutely in that day without question, without exception. To make this short, because I don't want to take a lot of time in this program, he died spiritually. They died spiritually. They died spiritually in the sense that the Spirit of God that was breathed within humanity was withdrawn at that time. They were still physically alive, but they were spiritually dead. And everyone who has been born since then, from Adam and Eve, have been born in the image of Adam, not in the image of God. They have been born 
to be a reflection of what it looks like not to have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. That, to me, is a description of some really bad news. The bad news is that God created us in one way, and we're no longer in that way. That He created us in a way that we would have His Spirit dwelling within us, but He's no longer there. I consider this to be a serious issue, a serious problem that needs a resolution. Now, you have two problems related to this. The first problem is, of course, that sin has entered into the world and that humanity is now in a condition that certainly does not seem suitable for the Spirit of God to dwell within us anymore because of the sinfulness of humanity, the condition that we are in. We are not suitable for the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. In order to make us suitable, there needs to be a solution to this. But the second problem, the first problem is sin. The second problem is the absence of life. The absence of the life of God. This is the bad news. So the good news, the good news is a solution to this two-part problem. The good news is that the Lord Jesus died for our sins. But he didn't just die for our sins for nothing. He died for our sins so that he can offer to us send back to us the Holy Spirit that was lost in Adam, offered to us as a free gift, so that if we will only receive the free gift of the life of God that was lost in Adam, we will then be made alive. We will then be resurrected right now. Now, I do believe in a future resurrection in addition to that. I do. I know that there are people who do not believe in a future resurrection or that the kingdom of God will will not be another place. There are different beliefs concerning what is going to happen in the future. And if you want to disagree with me on that, by all means, you are free to do so. And I'm confident that in time, we will have a final answer for these kinds of questions. But in the meantime, I have a position, and I take my position. My position is is that we can experience a resurrection right now, and we will also experience another resurrection in the future. Jesus died for our sins so that he could restore to us the spirit of life that had been lost in Adam, which will then resurrect us from the dead spiritually. And it is in that way that we are saved. Saved from our sins? Sure. But we are also saved from being dead. And that, to me, is great news. That is good news. Everyone has been forgiven, but not everyone has been saved. He died for the sins of the world. That is a way of saying that everyone has been forgiven. He doesn't hold our sins against us anymore. He doesn't relate to us on the basis of our sins. He relates to us on the basis of are we dead or are we alive. When I go before the Lord, I don't believe he and I are going to have a conversation about my sin. I I really don't expect that to occur. If it does, I'm not going to complain. I'm just not expecting that. I believe that the question at hand will be, Aaron, are you alive Or are you dead? If you're dead, you have no place among the living. And so there's only one place for you to go. And that's the place that was prepared for the devil and his angels, because there is nowhere else to go. So I do believe that this is the description of the gospel. It has to do with sin, death, forgiveness, and the restoration of life. Consider the keys that were given to Peter that he used to unlock the door. And when he unlocked that door, what happened? 
People were made alive. That's what happened. People were made alive. In Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 10, in Acts chapter 2, you have the Jews who become alive because they received the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, you have the Gentiles who become alive because they received the Holy Spirit. And the gift of tongues was given as validation so that people could communicate clearly. There would be no confusion about what people would say or hear, and that there would be a clear understanding of what was understood by them when it came to the question of who Jesus is, what did he come to accomplish, and how did he accomplish that? Now, in Matthew chapter 16, when the Lord Jesus was speaking to Peter about the keys that he would give concerning the kingdom of heaven, and that whatever he would bind, whatever Peter would bind on earth would be bound in heaven, and whatever he would loose on earth would be loosed in heaven, it's my sincere opinion that that last phrase about binding and loosing has to do with if he will tell people about the truth of the gospel, they will be set free. They will also be bound. They will be set free from the bondage that they were in being dead, and they will be bound to the kingdom of heaven, where they can be among the living. Remember what I said in the previous programs concerning the subject of binding and loosing. They were presented in pairs. I gave the example of the dietary laws concerning you are bound from eating meat, but you can drink the broth that the meat was boiled in. You are loosed to do that. You are permitted or you are not permitted. You are forbidden or you are allowed. These were legislative acts that the Pharisees exercised, and this was the way to correspond to some of the Proverbs to represent some sense of wisdom. This is the way that they were presented. And so Jesus does not say you're going to do one or the other. He says you're actually going to do both. That's what I hear. I hear him say that you are going to be loosed from your bondage to the devil, and you are going to be bound to the Lord through salvation once you are made alive, and that both of these things will occur together. Peter did this through what he accomplished in Acts chapter 2 and 10, so that he was the first to exercise the keys. But we also have this power of binding and loosing together when we communicate the gospel to others so that they might be set free from the bondage that they are in so that they might be loosed, and so that they also may be bound to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, the living God, so that they might be bound to the true and living God and have a place in the kingdom of heaven. What happens here is something that is going to be realized there, which is why I believe he said bound on earth will be bound in heaven, because what happens here is important. You have a short period of time while you are here, and what you do here in your limited amount of time is significant and will have implications in the future. If you are set free while you are here on earth, you are going to experience that freedom when you are in heaven. If you are bound to the living God while you are here on earth, you will experience that bondage, which I think is a wonderful bondage. You will experience being bound to your God when you enter into his kingdom. So these were keys that were used to unlock doors to disclose things that people did not really understand back then. And still today, it is a challenge to get people to understand these things today. If you don't believe me, get out there a little bit more often and try to tell people about things like I just described in the last few minutes, and you will find a lot of resistance for a variety of reasons. 
and I've done a number of programs talking about the reasons why people are resistant to these things. In the series of programs I did on forgiveness, I talk about a number of these things. For now, though, I'd like to go to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, just to give you an example in the scriptures to see how this is hidden or how it was hidden, how it still is hidden in some ways. In Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, it says, The mystery, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you see that in verse 27? Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is a description of the restoration of the Holy Spirit. And he describes this as a mystery that had been hidden from generations. Why was it hidden? How was it hidden? Well, there is a lot to be said about that, and I believe it's worth talking about it. I'll refer to a couple of items. I believe the first reason why it was hidden is because people became focused on the law and assumed that through the law they would have salvation. Now, there is nothing in the law that says anything about salvation. There's nothing in the law that says that you will have the spirit of life restored to you. But there was a belief that people had that through the law they would experience some salvation from the problem that had evolved as a result of the decision of Adam and Eve. There's a prayer, for example, that has been said by the Pharisees ever since the time of the Lord Jesus. After the reading of the Torah, the reading of the law, you would pray this prayer and thank God that through the law you have the life of God restored to you. Now, I don't believe that that's true. I know this prayer. I said it myself for many years. I recited this. And so I'm very familiar with this, but I'm saying that I don't believe it is valid. I really don't. I believe that the restoration of life only comes from the Messiah, not from the law. He never promised that through the law. He never offered that through the law. So that's one reason why this has been a mystery. It is because of the beliefs that people have assumed that simply are not true. I don't believe that the Lord himself has been keeping this a secret I believe that it is the people who have been keeping this a secret. I believe that it is also the devil who has been participating and who has been creating this mystery by intervening in people's lives in whatever way he can to prevent people from recognizing the nature of the problem and the nature of the solution. And I believe that today we are still fighting this war on the basis of the gospel with the devil over whether or not this mystery is going to be revealed. Again, in verse 26, this is Colossians chapter 1, verse 26, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, and I believe he is saying that in the sense of in addition to the Jews. Now, his will, God willed to make known, you know, his will is the description of the inheritance that we receive as a result of his death. And his death occurred on the cross. It was because of his death 
his will went into effect, which describes an inheritance that we are able to receive in Christ Jesus, and we are now able to live with the abundance of what has been given to us. We are to live growing in a knowledge and understanding of what we now have in Christ, which is everything that we need for life and godliness. That's what I read when I hear to them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, and I believe he means that in addition to the Jews, which is Christ in you, which the Jews should have fully embraced. But there are many indications in the scriptures that demonstrate, in my opinion, that they did not embrace it as well as perhaps we would have liked them to. That is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Without Christ in you, you have no hope of glory at all. Now, what are the implications of this? Think about this for a moment, please, because this is very important. This will demonstrate to you the nature of the war that we are in, and it will help you understand the battle that you are really fighting, and it will help you understand the weapons that the devil is using to beat people up with. If you do not understand the weapons of the devil, if you don't even know what they are, How do you expect to defend yourself? How do you expect to wage war, be a part of the war? How do you expect to help people withstand the battle that they are engaged in? Do you think it ends with salvation? Absolutely not. In many ways, that's when it really starts. Because it is then when salvation occurs, when a person is saved, when a person is resurrected, it's then that they become a child of God. That is the time when the devil is going to begin to really fight, really fight to try to take this person. Now, he's not going to be able to take this person in the sense of being able to take him or her back into his kingdom. It's over. Once they've been resurrected, then he is no longer able to take them. A person cannot be lost once they have been saved. There's no way for that to be accomplished according to the definition of the gospel. If the definition of the gospel is, he died for your sins so that he can restore the spirit of life to you. If he died for your sins so that he can restore the spirit of life to you, what would cause the spirit of life to leave? Sin. But there is no sin that he holds against you anymore. So you will never lose the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. The life of God will never leave because there is no sin that will ever be held against you again, and the wages of sin is death. But when no sin is held against you because of forgiveness, you will never die. In that way, the devil will never be able to reclaim you as one of his. So what can he do? All he can do is beat you as much as possible to make sure that you are no longer effective or can no longer potentially be effective but to also find a way to use you still to his advantage. The way that this happens is through the law. It is the law that the devil uses in order to crush people and in order to continue to use them for his purposes. Consider the Pharisees who I described earlier. He used the Pharisees. He endorsed the Pharisees by giving the appearance that they were able to cast out demons or the Kabbalists, the subculture, the subset of the Pharisees that I described in the previous program, he used them in that way so that they would continue to perpetuate the law and in this way with some greater sense of authority. What was used in order to kill humanity to begin with? It was the law. 
the law that God gave. If you eat from the wrong tree, you're going to die. That's the law that the devil used in order to kill people. He used that law. He used the law to kill people. He used the law to keep people in bondage. So today, you think he's going to do anything different? I mean, it works so well. Why give it up? Why put it on a shelf? Why not keep using it? And that's what he does. He uses that as a weapon in order to at least cause people to be ineffective, or at most, he uses that through individuals in order to keep others from entering into the kingdom of God or to oppress others who are in the kingdom of God to make them as ineffective as possible. He uses the law. We were set free from the law through forgiveness. It was forgiveness that set us free from the law because when there is no punishment, there really is no law. The Lord did that so that we could walk in a newness of life, not go out and indulge the flesh. He did that so that we could walk in the newness of life. But when people don't know that, when they have been deceived into believing that the law still has a place in their life, then they can be beaten down by the devil or they can be used by the devil. Now, there's a lot to be said about this. I'm going to be spending several programs explaining more details concerning this issue of the law. But for this program, I want you to understand the definition of the gospel and that the law is not in it, outside of the fact that it is the law that defines sin and we have been forgiven. So the law had a purpose. It has been fulfilled so that the keys could be used to open the door so that we could walk in a new way of life in Christ Jesus. Now, in the next program, I'm going to go back to something I referred to in a previous program, and that is Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. That's what I'm going to talk about in the next program, or the beginning of the next program, in order to address those verses from the point of view of the gospel that I just presented. This is really important because these verses are often referred to when people have a question about what will be the criteria or the conditions by which a person may be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven or not, especially when he said at the end of verse 23, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This has to do with spiritual warfare, and I will explain this in the next program. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net